Amen. Thank you, Bill. Well, take your Bibles out, if you will, and open to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. We're going to finish out this chapter today, the Lord willing. And uh, I want to thank Pastor Brenton and the worship team for leading us this morning in worship, just to come into the presence of God as we did. What a powerful time. And those songs, the, the words of those songs. If you just take in the words and just receive them for what they're saying, it cannot help but point you to Jesus and strengthen you, you know, as we go through this life. So I'm very thankful for that. And then, of course, just thankful for uh, the video we just saw. Um, from the foundation of this church, we, we really prayed through and felt like the Lord was building this church on five uh, foundations. One would be that we would be a church that worships God and God alone. So we hold up worship. It's a high value, the worship of God. And then secondly, that we would be a church that is committed to the teaching of the word, that we would be a church that believes the Bible in its inerrancy and infallibility in its original text, and we would live by that. It's authoritative in our lives. And then thirdly, that we would be given to discipleship and that is properly understanding what the Bible teaches and making sure that we're clear in our doctrines that the Bible teaches. Fourthly, that we would be a church of fellowship. And, you know, people gather here way before service starts. It's very unique. I've pastored in Florida my whole life. I've never seen so many people that show up 30 minutes ahead just to have fellowship, just to hang out. And we took a little bit of a hit there on COVID. Uh, people, you know, obviously we were home, we weren't coming to church, and then we started coming and people were hesitant to come out early. And some didn't come at all because of COVID. But now we're seeing it pick back up again and just very thankful for that. And those of you who have come back to join us recently, it's so good to see your faces and good to have you with us. And, uh, but we're a fellowship church. And then lastly is that we're a church committed to the Great Commission. We're committed to seeing people come to Jesus Christ. And you cannot be a church that takes uh, the Great Commission seriously if you, a member of the church, are not taking serious the command of Christ to go and tell others about Jesus. And so Brenton's prayer this morning focused us on being a church that shares the gospel with others. The, the video focused us on this wonderful opportunity coming to our church that you're going to see happen at least once a year, and there will be numerous times throughout the year where we highlight missions. Missions is not a sideshow. It's not something that we, we also do. No, it is, it's one of the centerpieces. It's what brings life to this body, knowing that the gospel is being shared around the globe and that we can have a hand in it and that we ourselves are sharing the gospel in our own community. It'd be it would be a hypocrisy for us to only focus on those who are sharing the gospel in other places, and yet us not sharing the gospel in Vero Beach. So we have to have both, right? And we are going to have an incredible weekend, the weekend after Easter. It's kind of interesting. Palm Sunday, and if you have your little, uh, I think they were on the chair, pew chair, a few of these were out, but we have the little cards, the invites that you can give. And one of our own uh, members of our church and uh, the, the Walker family, uh, they're the ones who really oversee so much of the artistic work, and their daughter is the one that put this together. And we're just so thankful for, uh, for, for Emily and Natalie, but Emily's the one that designed this. But on the backside, uh, Good Friday service is going to be uh, one, a wonderful time that follows Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday and Good Friday are all about the cross and the reconciliation that we have with God. Then we go into Easter, which is about the resurrection, and then it's only natural that we come after Easter, the very next Sunday, and we talk about the Great Commission. So that's a beautiful flow. We didn't design it that way. God just, that's just how it worked out. That's what it's about. So this missions weekend is huge. And Sunday morning, we're going to hear from the couple that we're just, uh, we just learned about. And then Sunday evening, we're going to have a wonderful time. I, is the dinner on Sunday night or Monday night? Sunday night, we're having a dinner over at the plaza. And we're going to have a wonderful time hearing from another mission, another missionary. In fact, uh, the president of a, a missions organization is going to be with us. 
And then on Monday night, we're also going to have another uh, person who's in missions working out of South America. And uh, it's just going to be awesome. It's a whole weekend. You do not want to miss any of it. In fact, it, it starts the Thursday before one of our own members, Chris Bills, who has a heart for missions and feels a calling to missions. And he's going to be sharing with us on the Thursday night Bible study. I'll step aside and he'll, he'll share. So it's going to be a week of, of just focus on missions. This is not something that you pick and choose and yeah, maybe we... Listen, this is who we are. Once a year we come together and we intensify our passion, our desire in order to come out four times, three times to experience what God is doing and then be part of it. And it'll, what it'll do, the ultimate outcome is, not only do you have a better understanding of the missions that we support financially, but it, it empowers you. It says they, the scripture says in Revelation, they overcame by, by, the word of the, by the word of the Lord and by the power of their testimonies. So we're going to hear testimonies. It's going to infuse power in you to go out and be a greater witness. So I, I've given a big plug here, but it's, it's because it's really who we are. And it's important to share this. So hope you're part of it, okay? Well, let's continue today in Matthew's uh, gospel, and actually we're going to be on the same subject. It's kind of cool how things work out. I, we didn't order this up, this is just God. So let me share with you first, uh, we continue in chapter 17, uh, where Christ took Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, and he took them to a high mountain. Where had they come from? They were up in Caesarea Philippi in the north, above uh, the Sea of Galilee, as far north as you could go, really, in that region. And while they were there, that's, the, that's really the home base for all the, the pantheon gods, all the ridiculous pagan gods of the world. And uh, it's one of the places it's known for. And G there Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they gave all kinds of answers. And then he said, but who do you say that I am? And that's the question before each and every one of us. Who do you say Jesus Christ is? And, and Peter was, was illuminated by the Holy Spirit. And he said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And by the way, if you don't believe he's the Christ, the Son of the living God, one of two things could be at play. Either God's not revealed it to you because he knows your heart. Your heart's not bent towards God. He knows that you won't do anything with it if you're told. And how many times have you heard the gospel already in your life, and yet Jesus means nothing to you? You give him credit for being a good man, being an honorable man, being a prophet. He's a prophet, a great prophet. He's, hey, he's so much more than that. He's God. And I pray that today that God will open your eyes to see Jesus for who he really is. So they leave that place in Caesarea Philippi, make their way back down towards Capernaum. That's where they're going to end up next chapter we'll see that but as they're and even this chapter but they're coming back and they just take a little bit of a side route possibly they go over to a mountain it's not a real high mountain 33,200 feet up and they get up on the mountain and there with Peter James and John only the the other disciples down at the base of the mountain Peter James and John see Jesus transfigured into the son of God and I think this is real important that we understand this. Up to this point in time, God had revealed through Peter that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. And now all of a sudden they're up on this mountain, the three, Peter, James, and John, and they now see Jesus as he is in heaven. All of a sudden the glory of God comes upon him, and now he's dressed differently in a white robe, so white you can't even look at it. And they see him for who he really is. So first they got the revelation that he was God. Now God says, I'm going to let you behold that revelation. And they see him. Now in review, just quickly, I want to cover this because I think it's very important. It's amazing how words today can have different meanings. And I want you to understand the meaning of these words in the Bible. 
While people might use them differently today, the Bible does not change, ever. And so let's get this right. In review, let's remember that to transfigure, and that's what we were talking about, the transfiguration, to transfigure is to change in an outward form or appearance. It's to change so as to glorify or to exalt In other words, nothing changes on the inside. When someone or something is transfigured, it's an outer change. It's not an inward change. And the only one on earth who can be transfigured is Jesus in earth form. Uh, Only God can be transfigured because only God needs to change the outside. He doesn't need to change the inside. God is God. Jesus was God on the inside. But he transfigured. Now, the word transformed or transformation, is a word that oftentimes bleeds over into transfiguration, and it shouldn't. Transformation is to change in condition. It's to change in nature. It's to change in your character. And and Jesus never needed to change his character, his nature. He's God. Even when he was on earth, he was still God. But you and I need to be transformed. We need to go from the old man, a life of sin, into the new man. Amen? So uh, transformation is to change in condition, nature, or character. It's an internal change. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. On the outside, you look the same. You go to church a sinner, you come out of church, you're saved. And nobody knows the difference looking at you. You're not glowing afterwards. I know some of you think you did, okay? You thought you were just something special, okay, after you got saved. No, you look the same. It was the inward change. What was changing? Well, it used to be that in the old self, it was lust, corruption, and deceit that ruled your heart. But that's no longer you. You've been transformed by Christ. Now, it's righteousness, holiness, and truth, of which you don't possess but, but you carry, you have Christ's righteousness, his holiness, you have his truth. Amen? That's the change. And so let's return to our text and pick it up where the disciples see Jesus in his transfigured state. And Peter starts talking about building shrines for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me, he's not realizing it. He just put the Son of God on the same level as two of the created beings. So when he does that, God the Father steps in. Let's pick it up at verse 5. He, being Peter, was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. (coughs) Excuse me. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Interestingly, it's when the disciples hear the voice from heaven in the cloud that they fell on their faces and were terrified. Notice, they didn't become terrified when they saw Jesus glorified. They weren't terrified when they saw Jesus talking to Elijah and Moses, the representation of the law and the prophets. And Jesus said in Matthew 5 I am, uh, and 7, or I'm sorry, Matthew 8, I'm the fulfillment of that in chapter 5. I'm the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. They, didn't, they weren't terrified when they learned that. No, notice it's, it's when God the Father speaks and says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. They were experiencing in that moment what I would call a liminal moment. Liminal meaning... Uh, speaking of a threshold, a place where the veneer is so thin between God and man. This is a liminal moment. It's a very powerful moment. Uh, They just heard God who is unknowable, except for the fact that he reveals himself to us in the Bible, except for the fact that he reveals himself to us in nature, in the creation but he's still unknowable. We don't, we, we don't know everything there is to know about God. He's beyond us. He's above us. He is 
transcendent. God is transcendent. We treat, and yet, what's, what, you know, when you think about the fact that God is transcendent, he's holy, he's righteous, he's other. He's nothing like us. And I think sometimes as Christians, we lose sight of that. We forget just how other God really is. When the Bible says, in the beginning, I don't know if you understand, but that's not saying that there was a beginning for God. That's our beginning. When God created, God existed before the beginning. That's other. There's nothing in that that's like anything I can understand in my finite mind, and neither can you. And so we treat him oftentimes, and this, this is concerning as a shepherd, one of the shepherds amongst other shepherds in this flock, the elders. It's concerning that we treat him like he's just another relationship in our life. Hey, hey, Papa, how are you today? You don't see the disciples. These are the ones who were closest to Jesus, the inner circle. Yet when they come into this range, this liminal moment with God the Father, and he speaks out, they fall down on the ground terrified. Terrified. That is how other, that's how holy, that's how righteous God is. You're not going to feel in the moment like going, hey, Papa. There's this holy moment in all of us. When we come into worship on Sunday morning, yes, we sing songs about Jesus and the fact that he is God incarnate, God Emmanuel, God what? With us. But because he's with us doesn't remove the fact that the Father is transcendent. He's beyond us. Never lose sight of that. He's eternal God. He's the maker of heaven and earth. Isaiah 40, verse 12 says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or, who, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? What he's saying is, no man has ever done anything apart from what the Father has given to him so that he can do it. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket from God's view. Wow. They're a drop from the bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel. Lebanon known for its cedar trees, the huge, beautiful cedars of Lebanon. Nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. God's not hanging on the nations. God's not concerned with world governments. God's not losing it over who's sitting on the throne on earth in some nation. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman cast it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. By the way, this is Isaiah. This is 700 years before Jesus came. This is Old Testament before Christ. And he just said there's a circle of the earth. A little bit ahead of the guys that we know of who came up with that. See, let me tell you something. Science is always playing catch up with God. 
and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Our God is an awesome God. When you put God in that position, when you see him for who he is, it changes how you use the word awesome. It should. I, I'm, I'm probably the world's worst. I see something I like, oh, that's awesome. No, it's not really awesome. Somebody bakes a beautiful pie, you know, and brings it to my house, and I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Okay, it's, it's wonderful. It's a blessing. But it's not awesome. To be in awe, you have to look up. There is nothing on this earth that is awesome. The greatest structures that man has ever built are not awesome. If you're studying to be a draftsman, an architect, you'll fall far, far, you'll fall far short of what God has created. You'll never match it. There's only one true living God. Amen? So that's why they fall in terror. God is above us, he's sovereign, and he's other. He is transcendent. Now, that doesn't mean that he's unreachable or unknowable. He chose to reach out to us. This God that is other chose to come near us. Look at verse 7. You see it right here. You go from the transcendent God that's above us, beyond us, that we can't possibly fully fathom or understand, and in the very next verse, but Jesus came and touched them. They just saw him glorified. They know he's God. God, transcendent, just came and physically touched them. Rise. Look what he says. Have no fear. The fear that they had, the fright that they experienced was at the holiness of God. It wasn't a bad fear. It wasn't an unhealthy fear. It wasn't a, a go to a movie theater and sit there and then in the most you know, oh, just these, I can't do it. I, I do not like scary movies. I just don't. I can't watch them. I mean, terror, forget it. My wife, cue it up, baby. She's ready to go. Me, I go in the other room. I don't want any part of it. Okay, it'd be like you in a movie theater and all of a sudden at that point where the music builds and they always pan in close and you can't see what's behind them. And you know it's there. And I'm like freaking out. Get me out of here. That's not the kind of fear these guys had. Theirs was a holy fear. A reverent fear. Whoa. We're in the presence of of something that is other. We're falling apart in his presence. Our sins are revealed in his presence. And so they're in terror, they're in fear, they're prostrate, they're laying out on the ground. Jesus, God, the same God who is transcendent, has come near. God, Emmanuel, God with us, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, who? They saw no one but Jesus only. How do you make it through this life, this world that we're in right now? How do you make it through the trials that you face, the suffering that you endure, the sickness that you go through, the pain, the whatever it is? You keep your eyes on Jesus only. God who has come near to you so we go from this transcendent God to this imminent God. I don't mean imminent in the sense that his return is imminent by time. I mean imminent in terms of closeness, intimacy. God who's transcendent has become intimate with us. There's a wonderful verse, and Bill read it for us. The last verse that he read, it's in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, where Luke records regarding the church, and guess what? We are the church. Not the building, not the name, you and I who are saved. We're the church, okay? Listen to what it says about the church. He records in Acts 9, 31, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria 
had peace and was being built up. Now here it is. And walking in the fear of the Lord, the early church never lost sight of the greatness and transcendence of God. Walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They had both the transcendent God and the imminent God. The God who is above us, beyond us, greater than all of us, and will hold the whole thing together until he calls us home. And the God who came to earth in order to come near to us, to identify with our sufferings, with our own pain, with our human situation, and went to the cross and died for us. That is your God. Transcendent in the aspect of God's nature and power that is wholly independent of the material universe beyond all physical knowledge and understanding. And Scripture often speaks of that. Transcendence in God's lordship over his world with particular reference to you and I, his royal subjects, and he is the king. I love that. But also, trans, he's not just transcendent, he's imminent, where he is fully present in the physical world. He's accessible to us day or night, 24-7. To say that God is imminent is to say that he is present in our time, in our space. He's real. He's a real person. He's not a force. He's not some power source. He is a real personality. And because of that, you're able to have a real relationship with him because he came close. He came near to you. I want you to notice how Paul describes in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, where he begins and where he ends. I want you to see this as he talks about Jesus Christ. By the way, the, the, the book of Colossians that Paul wrote, the letter that he wrote to the church in Colossae, you will not find anywhere else in the entire Scripture a more clear, concise Christology. He lays out who Jesus Christ is. And listen to this. Listen where he starts and listen where he finishes. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Doesn't mean that Jesus was created. Firstborn there actually refers to first in priority, first in importance, okay? For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. Through who? Who's Paul speaking of? Jesus. We often attribute the creation to God the Father, and we don't think of Jesus the Son. Jesus the Son is God the Father in the sense that they're both God, right? So Jesus was part of creation. It was created through him and for him. The world was never created for man. The world was never created for us to think only of ourselves. It was to bring glory back to God. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be, there it is, preeminent. That's what firstborn means. He's preeminent. And look at this. Look how he changes now. He starts out with God being transcendent above us, and now look at this. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God who is other, who is transcendent, came to earth in the form of man, God with us, and he went to the cross and he died for us. And Christ had just shared that fact with the disciples. In fact, several times already he has shared that he would be taken by men, he would be 
crucified, he would die, he would be raised from the dead. He said all of that to them. And he's about to say it again to them. And each time he says it, it just causes them to struggle, to shudder, to think that Jesus would somehow be taken by men. Well, now coming, you know, they, 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 they go to this mountain experience, and, and now we see the purpose for the Mount of Transfiguration. It was to steady them, to shore them up. The purpose for the transfiguration was to anchor the disciples in confidence of the glory which is going to follow the suffering of Christ. Jesus has been telling them, I'm going to suffer. So he takes them to the mountain, he shows them his glory to show them, hey, even if I suffer, that's not the end. Hold on. Don't lose hope. Keep your eyes on me alone. Watch what happens. I'm going to suffer. But then I'm going to be raised from the dead. I can't wait for Easter this year. I'm just excited for where we're going. He had just revealed his humiliation and suffering, and now it makes perfect sense that the divine testimony of Jesus would be revealed to the disciples. And when they lifted their heads, when he said, hey, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, they lift their heads from the terror of God's almighty voice, and they see Jesus only. And that's all we need to see. By seeing Jesus as he is, it compels us to go forward. What does that look like, to go forward? When a Christian truly sees Jesus for who he is, what does it mean to go forward? I'll tell you what it means. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. Turn there. I, I do want you to turn. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. 700 years earlier, Isaiah is giving us uh, continually throughout the book, he gives us these wonderful messianic prophecies. Now, this is about God. This is not a messianic prophecy, but it should interest us nonetheless. In verse 9, chapter 40, chapter, nine, uh, chapter 40, by the way, is one of my favorite chapters in the book of Isaiah. But he says in verse 9, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Okay, so he's speaking to the people of God. Go up to a high mountain. Jesus just went to a high mountain with his disciples. Herald of good news. Who's the herald of good news? The people. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news, he says it again emphatically, saying, do you understand that's who you are? As a Christian, you are a herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. <laughs> I love that. He's saying that we are living, we're going forward because we've seen Jesus, we know who he is. He came from heaven, he came close, he died on the cross for our sins so that we could lift up our eyes and see him for who he is and we could go to the mountains, we could go to the deepest valleys and we can proclaim, behold your God! Reminding people who Jesus is, who God is. I'm not saying do that belligerently, I'm not saying be obnoxious about it, I'm saying be faithful to it, to share the good news. Be a herald of good news to people in this world, amen? To your family members, to your friends, to your enemies. Be a herald of good news. This is us in 2021. This is what God has ordered up for us. He's a never-changing God. And so what he gave 700 years before Christ still holds true 2,700 years later. Verse 9 in our text, and as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them. He didn't ask. He didn't say, hey, just consider this. He commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Well, guess what? He has now been raised from the dead. Amen? So we ought to be telling somebody about this stuff. This is what the church is all about. In verse 10, and the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And this idea that Elijah must come first is a prophecy in Malachi. It's in chapter 4, and it's verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, uh, uh, the day of the Lord comes. So the disciples are asking a legitimate question. If it's true that Elijah is to come before the Messiah, then why did he come after you? Okay, why is that? And, and Jesus answered, Elijah does come before. 
and he will restore all things. And so what Jesus is, what, he, when it, when it's, what, what the Old Testament prophet was referring to is the second coming of the Lord. Elijah will come before the second coming of the Lord. And so Jesus is very much trying to help them understand things are still very much in order as the prophet gave in the Old Testament. And, and just understand that. In Revelation 11, 3 through 13, we actually learn about the two witnesses that are going to show up prior to the second coming of Christ. And many people believe Elijah will be one of them. Uh, many believe Moses will be one of them. Many believe that it's the Old Testament law and prophets that will show up. And so we don't know for sure. That's what people, some people believe that to be true. Verse 12, but I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. So now he's referring to John the Baptist, who had the spirit of Elijah. Verse 13, then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So, so and when, when they came to the crowd, so now they move on. By the way, it's in Luke 1.17 that it says that uh, John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. It's right in the Bible. Verse 14, now they move down, they've come off the mountain, you know, they're moving towards Capernaum. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into, into the fire and often into the water. So Jesus and his disciples, they go come down from the mountain, and now all of a sudden uh, they go from the heavenly glory to demonic warfare. <laughs> uh, that's about right in life, isn't it? You go from this heavenly moment in church, you're on the way home, and, you, and the phone rings, and man, it's just, oh man, all hell just broke loose, you know? That's about right. That's how life is. Okay, so we're, we're no different. Don't, 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 you know, if that happens, oh, you know, it's just me. Oh, woe is me, singing that poor song. No, it happened to Jesus. He's God, and it happened to him. So you're in good company when bad things come your way. Okay, so anyway, they, they, they see this guy suffering, and, and he says, Lord, verse 15, have mercy on my son. Have mercy on him. And so Jesus, who has ministered in and, in and around the crowds for, for a long time now, he's ministering, he's coming to the end of this time in the north, but he recognizes this boy who has seizures, and he recognizes that the origin of the seizures is, is demonic. It's demonic. That doesn't mean, listen church, listen. That doesn't mean that everyone who has seizures is controlled by a demon today. Or even in that day. That's not the case, okay? But in fact, Mark's account is the one, it's his account of this story that tells us that the boy was made deaf and dumb by, by a demon. That's why he was falling into fire. That's why he was falling into water. So it's demonic possession. And verse 16, and I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. Now that's interesting because if you remember back a few chapters ago, Jesus, he prepared his disciples and gave them power to go out and proclaim the message of the gospel. They went out and were sharing Christ. People were being healed and demons were coming out and everything else. Why now can they not do it? And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, who's he speaking to? His disciples. His disciples, his followers. O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Bring him here to me, this boy. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. And then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? Why, why couldn't we do it? And he said to them, because of your little faith. You, you didn't have the faith to believe. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Well, that's, that's pretty powerful. You, you know how big? See, a lot of us go, well, you, you know, some people will say, if you're sick and you don't get healed, you pray for healing, you don't get healed, what? You don't have enough faith. Okay? Or they'll say, you just, you know, there's sin in your life. There's a reason why. Well, guess what? Not every reason for sickness is an, is an answer 
with healing. Okay? There are times in the Bible where God does not heal. There are times in the Bible where Jesus did not heal. He left them sick. It's not that he couldn't. God can do whatever God chooses to do. He can heal, a, he can heal somebody of cancer just as easy as healing somebody of a common cold. No big deal to God. It's not about that. And it's not even about faith. It's about God in his sovereign will allowing that sickness to exist for a purpose that he's working in that person. Oftentimes, that's the case. Yet, he is still a God of healing, and we can see that he, Jesus is saying, you need to have faith. Now, some people go, well, I guess I don't have enough faith. Do you know how much faith you need? Because we get this idea that it's about the size of my faith that causes God to move in my life or another. It's not about the size of the faith. It's about what your faith is in. It's about the object of your faith. You want to see how big the faith is that's required for you to be able to move a mountain? You want to know what, how big that is? Let's put it on the screen. There you go. That's a grain of a mustard seed. You think Jesus is really into size? It's not about the size of your faith. It's about the fact that you need to put your faith in God. Listen to me. Don't put your faith in healing. Put your faith in the God who heals. Don't put your faith in whatever it might be, the stock market. Don't put your faith in the government for a stimulus. Good grief. Our children will be suffering forever trying to bear it, get us out of the inflation and everything else that's going to come because of these ridiculous decisions. That's called getting off track. Sorry. I couldn't help it, man. I'm just so fed up. Put your faith in Jesus. Because then, no matter what the economy is, no matter what the sickness is, God is in control. He has full knowledge of it. He is so other, he's so transcendent, he's so much bigger and greater than that little tiny piece of speck of, of sickness that you're experiencing. But to you, it's a big deal when you're in it. But the fact is, God's there. And if he wants you to stay sick in order to teach you lessons through it, then let him do it. I laid in the hospital bed and not too, back in the summer with COVID and trying to catch my breath and not getting enough oxygen and all of that. And I remember that night, that first night in that hospital room, I went, got out of my bed, went over and sat in that recliner, laid that thing back, put a blanket over me, and I sat there looking out the window and the rain was just beating against the window. And man, God and I had a meeting. We had a wonderful time. I had a liminal moment with God. The transcendent God of the universe who's so much greater and so far beyond me came near to me by the Holy Spirit and ministered to me. And he allowed me to go through that like he's let so many of you go through COVID. Isn't that interesting? Somebody was, showed me a video of some guy who was actually binding the evil spirit of COVID. Is it possible that maybe you're binding what God's doing? I didn't say God gave you COVID, but I'm saying God's using it. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid and I did something wrong, I got in trouble for it. There was a price to pay. Sometimes God chastens those that he loves. And he brings them through it. See, put your faith in God. Pray for healing. Believe God for healing. It's not about the size of the faith, that's for sure. It's about the object of your faith. God is the object. See, here's what I believe happened that day when that boy was healed. I believe that father brought him to Jesus and believed absolutely Jesus can do whatever he chooses to do. I believe he can heal him. His faith probably wasn't even the size of a mustard seed because he didn't move a mountain. He just, tiny little piece of, but it was enough. Keep your focus on Jesus. Let's close this down. Verse 22, And as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and, they will, and he will be raised on the third day. 
That's like the third time Jesus has said that to his disciples. And yet, they still don't really get it. Why? Because they're hanging up on it. They're struggling with it. What do you mean you're going to be hand taken by men? How could you, God, we just saw you on the mountain, glorified. How's that going to happen? I'll tell you how it's going to happen. When they came into the garden and there they took Jesus, they bound him, the scripture says. They bound him with ropes. Ropes. And they hauled him off. But do you know the whole story there? One of the Gospels records that when they came up there, Judas leading the legion, the thousand, and they come up there where Jesus is praying with his disciples. And Jesus looked up at him and said, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. And when he said, I am, the whole bunch of them fell down. This idea that today, you know, you go to church so you can get knocked down, you see it in a lot of camps. Go to church so you can have this incredible experience and the power of God come over you and you fall out. You don't see that in Scripture. Very seldom is a believer in God knocked down. It's the unbeliever who gets knocked down because they need it. The whole bunch of them got knocked down. Jesus at that moment could have just walked right through them, laying out every one of them, and walked away. He didn't. They got up, they recovered, and they came over and they bound him with rope. You really think ropes could hold the Son of God? He wasn't bound by ropes. He was bound by love. Love for you. A lost sinner with no hope of ever seeing heaven. He stayed. He was bound out of his love for us. And he went to the cross exactly as he told his disciples here. And I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. It was for us. This was God the Father's plan to send the Son. That's why Isaiah records in Isaiah 53, it pleased the Father to crush him. Not because he was a sadomasochist, but because he wanted to reach us. That God who is other, who's so far beyond us, he wanted to come near to us. And the only way to do it was through the reconciliation of our sin debt. And so he sent his son who was perfect, never sinned, to pay the debt for our sins. And when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? Here they are again, looking for a way to trap Jesus. He came in the house and Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From who do kings of the earth take toll or tax? Do they take it from their sons or from others? Now, understand the temple tax that the Pharisees are referring to, that the Jews paid, was a normal tax applied to every Jewish man. Peter gave the quick and natural answer to the question. Sure, he pays tax. Peter just covering, you know. Jesus questioned Peter, do you really think that a son has to pay taxes? Verse 25b, and when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From what, whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. I'm not by law required to take the tax or pay the tax. But, however, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook 
and take the first fish that comes up. By the way, prior to this, they were always casting nets. Now they're going to use a, a fish line and hook. And the very first fish that comes up, open its mouth, and you're going to find a shekel inside. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Peter, go ahead, go fishing. You're a fisherman. But the first fish that you catch, go ahead and open its mouth, get the shekel out of its mouth, and go pay the taxes for you and for me. Now, how many like to pay taxes that way? You, you'd probably go out today and buy a boat, wouldn't you? Just, just so you could take care of taxes in the future with, with, with fishing. Um, if Peter only knew that Jesus was going to pay a much greater price for Peter's sin debt than for the temple tax debt. Jesus was not obligated to pay the tax, the temple tax, but he miraculously took care of it. And now he's going to go to the cross and he's going to pay the price, not because he's guilty, no guilt, but he's going to pay the price for you and I. We're coming up close to Palm Sunday, another couple weeks, and what a special time that's going to be as we study the cross. And then that, that Friday night, Good Friday, right here out on the, on the grounds, we're going to have a wonderful service right before dusk, and we're going to remember the Lord and take communion together. But we're going to remember what he suffered for us. And then, of course, on Sunday... Two days later, you know, we're going to be celebrating the resurrected Jesus Christ. And then the next weekend, the whole weekend, we're going to focus on why he went to the cross, died, reconciled us back to God. What that power of the resurrection is really for in our lives today. It's so that we would be able to fulfill the great commission and go into the world. Amen? Father, thank you so much for your love and thank you for your word. God, if there's anything I've said today that is not of you, may that pass from the minds of people. May it only be your word that they remember. We are not here to lift up a man. We're not here to lift up uh, a people. We're not here to lift up a church. We're here to lift up Jesus and Jesus only. And we give you glory and praise for sending your son to us and the wonderful, mighty, awesome work that he did on the cross for us. And now we find hope and we find purpose for our future to share the good news with others. Send us out today with that mission and may we fully embrace it. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, let me just say as you get up and get ready to leave, we have tons of these. I would encourage you, those who will use them, and I hope all of you will take some, take them with you this week. When you go to a restaurant, lay it down with your tip. When you see people, walk up and hand one. Let's invite people to come and be part of our, our, our Good Friday, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter message, and also uh, the following missions weekend. God bless you. I pray the Lord bless you today in Jesus' name. Reach out to Christ if you have never prayed. Receive him in your heart. God bless.